I'm talking about UFOs. Last week I spoke with Jan Harzen from MUFON. We went through the deluge of data on the UFO phenomenon. This episode, I speak with a very knowledgeable fellow who's very familiar with the massive amounts of data. So I'll vaguely continue on that subject, and we'll talk about his personal encounters with crafts, and we'll start down the road of chronology, starting in World War II. There are a few things I'd like to address and clear up before we start. First, last time I mentioned the U.S. Navy's disclosure of the UFO phenomenon. I may not have explained what happened there in case you missed it. Uh, in 2017, a couple of Navy videos emerged of pilots interacting with UFOs. Uh, soon after this, the Navy released a statement acknowledging the phenomenon and confirming the authenticity of said videos. And the videos are basically dash cam shots of uh, the airplane's onboard cameras uh, as the pilots follow this unknown. Uh, The Washington Post and New York Times, I believe, both ran stories on this you can find online. Uh, Along with this acknowledgement, uh, the Navy asked that you please stop calling them UFOs and accept, adopt their terminology, UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, which you might hear us talking about uh, in this episode. So that's basically just a UFO. Uh, There might be a few acronyms flying your way through this episode. I apologize if you have to stop and Google those. Um, It's hard to keep people with this much insider knowledge from spilling out too much. Hopefully it's not too intense. Um, We talk about briefly about faster than light travel. Uh, That's the idea that, you know, a solid object like a ship could move faster than the speed of light, making it make some logical sense to our understanding of physics that, um, you know, a ship could get here from very far away. Um, we talk about the Robertson panel a lot in this episode, which we touched briefly on last time, but basically all you need to know is that the Robertson panel was an internal investigation, uh, led by the CIA and the intelligence advisory committee in 1952 to address the influx of UFO sightings. Um, at the end of their investigation, they deemed that the phenomenon was nothing uh, to, was not a threat, and efforts should be made to calm the public uh, from reaching mass hysteria. Um, In that arena, we talk briefly about Project Sign and Project Blue Book. In short, those are further investigations within the U.S. government in the early days of the phenomenon. Um, I recommend maybe just reading the Wikipedia on the Robertson panel and Project Blue Book if you want to have some background in that. Uh, e, lastly, in 2017, the, the Obama administration released a lot of documents pertaining to UFOs during what's called the Freedom of Information Act dump. Uh, they just released, they put, they put a bunch of stuff that was previously only available in the National Archives online that pertained, a lot of it pertained to UFOs. Um, you might also want to... Google the Bentwater UFO incident and the Hudson Valley sightings. We talk about those briefly if you're interested in a little bit of background. Okay. Last time, I mentioned a desire to put things in a timeline, so we'll be doing a bit of that in this episode. My guest is Dan Wright. He's written a book that catalogs the CIA's documents uh, from the late 40s until now. It's a great place to start if you're looking for a good history of the U.S., and UFOs. Uh, okay. 
times a charm calling Dan Rate. Hello. Hey, Dan, this is Noel. Hi. Hi, how you doing? I'm very well, thanks. Um, yeah, so I guess I'll start with just, um, you have been involved with MUFON for a while, right? <laughs> oh, only 41 years. <laughs> uh, I am undecided, frankly, as to whether this is strictly an extraterrestrial or perhaps in part or in whole an other dimensional experience. Mm-hmm. And that's partly because there is still this axiom out there that faster than light travel is impossible. Mm-hmm. Uh, And yet, if folks from seemingly different places, perhaps a dozen or more different places, are getting here uh, from some light years away, I mean, uh, our closest stars, like 4.3 million light years, are, yeah, I meant 4.3 light years which is uh, like a million times a million times the speed of sound, um, it doesn't seem reasonable that even if the occupants, the pilots, were to go into some sort of frozen stasis, that the civilization from whence they come would send out on such a voyage um, individuals who would not be coming back for, say, centuries. Mm-hmm. That, you know, anybody would say, no, that's silly. Mm-hmm. You, wouldn't, you wouldn't do that. Yeah, that makes no sense. Nothing to go back to. Yeah, 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 correct. Yeah, you could arrive thousands of years later and everything is different or there's nothing left. Um, so that kind of drives my thinking that in one manner or another, um, there's a fourth or fifth dimension involved that allows these folks to come here, if not instantaneously, then in a very short, very rapid time. Um, but I have n- no facts to back that up. It's just logic. So I'm kind of left there after all these years um, when there's somebody smart in this business said a couple of decades ago um, all that matters is when they're here they're real right. and so I kind of bought into that and I've never really uh, diverted from that right it's something that's happening we shouldn't necessarily be wondering or trying to fathom how right because and in some manner there has been physical evidence. Yeah. There have been some, though not a lot, of photographs. Right. Um, a fellow who used to be involved in this when he wasn't racing stock cars. <laughs> <laughs> a fellow who tracked only those cases where there was suspicion of physical evidence. He came up with 2,000 cases over a couple of decades, and he wrote that report at least 20, 25 years ago, so there would be many more at this point. Stuff like depressions in the ground, Mm. scorched grass, uh, stuff that is real and physical. Mm -hmm. So we have 
some information, perhaps not enough to make a cornerstone, but it's not nothing either. Right. Um, that when they're here, they're real, and that's to us for now is all that matters. Right. So that's interesting. You are sort of edging toward this uh, concept of an inter- interdimensional aspect more than some type of faster than um, faster than light travel. Uh, I'm edging that yeah, way. It's a gut yes, instinct. I still it's could not... be dissuaded. There could be a, a mathematical breakthrough tomorrow right. or something by physicists to show that, yes, faster than light travel is possible, that, frankly, Einstein was wrong. Right. I do feel like uh, there are those sometimes. There are, like, people... Um, like, I, I read an article recently that was, like, there was... And, I, and this is going to be the worst... Uh, reiteration of of what I read, but like they were f- f- observing something that appeared to travel faster than the speed of light. Some objects in yeah. interstellar space, yeah. So I feel like that stuff happens. And, yeah, I'm thinking of something just um, not off the top of my head, but it's something I've spoke on um, fairly recently mm-hmm. that. In a particular incident, um, it's it's a prior incident to the bent waters that we're all familiar with. It's been done on televised documentaries so many times. The Christmas week, nineteen eighty, bent waters case, and the surrounding forest where some triangular or a pyramidal mm. object. Um, was seen by multiple uh, U.S. forces, and eventually the lieutenant commander of the base, deputy commander, took in, he went to the site, and and he saw unusual things, too. That was all in 1980, but in 1956, something at least as extraordinary happened at the same place. Mm. It started with... um, blips on radar being picked up at two different air bases, but including Bentwaters, and eventually an RAF base nearby sent up a fighter jet. Now, this is 1956, you know, and we're um, back with those blunt-nosed fighter planes, Mm -hmm. but they were faster than anything with a prop, and it was a dual-piloted uh, affair. They got up, they saw these glowing lights in front of them and are closing in on them. And then in an instant, no more than an instant, however you define that, these lights are equidistant behind them. How they got from point A to point B mm-hmm. <laughs> in a wink of an eye, uh, that may be faster than light travel. Right. Uh, I, the pilot made a very wise decision at that point that they must be low on fuel. They had to come in and land. Right. <laughs> well, that, that leads me to, to the question. Um, so oh, there are, through a, a half century of following these bizarre cases, there are a few instances like that where it does seem like something instantaneous may have actually been faster than light travel. But, you know, it's, it's still not many cases out of 
the whole volume. That that makes me think of um, just the in you, in your head. Are there certain cases that are always going to stand above other ones? Are there ones that you're like this one? This is the one I always think of, or you know, I, I'm always coming back to this report. <laughs> I mean, either, yes, yeah. not what you're going to think. Okay. I, I, I was involved in investigating hundreds of cases, some highly credible, some not so much. Mm-hmm. But those that I can always go back to and bank on and say, yes, these are credible. They were my two own, two own experiences, mm-hmm. which both occurred in 1978, just within months after I joined MUFON. Interesting. Um, in the first one, are you familiar with um, the uh, Hudson Valley sightings yeah. of the early 80s mm-hmm. involving what some call a boomerang, others say a triangle? Mm-hmm. I understand why it's called both things, because it's sort of in between. Okay. Because I saw it in 78. Um, I was traveling with a work companion. She was driving. We were headed to a work site on a Sunday evening. And as we're traveling along I-94, just in the middle of farm country in south-central Michigan, um, I saw in kind of the short distance, as we're traveling west on westbound lanes of I-94, which, by the way, connects Detroit and Chicago. Uh, We're about midway between. Beyond the east coming lanes and a row of continuous line of trees, as so many interstates do have, Mm -hmm. there were lights that I realized instantly couldn't be normal FAA-sanctioned running lights. Mm -hmm. And so I shouted at this, my workmate, to stop the car, which she did. Um, it, I will go to my death believing, reacted to our stopping mm-hmm. the car because it made one of these right angle turns, except that it was a left turn, mm-hmm. and came directly over our car just to couple 300 feet overhead. Are you the only car out there right now, pretty much? It was a Sunday evening and sparse traffic, Mm -hmm. but that's a good question because this goes on for a number of minutes. And to my knowledge, no other car even slowed down, Mm -hmm. let alone stopped. Mm -hmm. This went overhead as big as any commercial airliner. Um, It wasn't quite an isosceles triangle. The rear line of it, the base, if you will, was kind of indented. Mm -hmm. So some people take that and say, that's a boomerang. Mm -hmm. Well, we all know what a real boomerang looks like, and it was nothing close to that. But it wasn't an isosceles triangle either. By the time it came directly over us, it's doing like 20 miles an hour. And and slowing and descending. And it starts over a newly harvested cornfield right next to us and did the tightest circle 
virtually a ballerina's pirouette, mm-hmm. like it stuck one wingtip in the air and pivoted on it. And while it's doing this, the woman, knowing I was a serious runner at the time, said, run, Dan, run mm-hmm. after it. And I thought, great idea. And I start <laughs> to run, still looking a little bit upward at this thing, forgetting that every interstate has a metal fence. Mm. And I bounced off that like a trampoline, (laughs) landed on my butt. And the first thought I have is, oh, great, I sure impressed these guys. (laughs) (laughs) Beam us up, Scotty. There's no intelligent life down here. So I got, got up and dusted myself off. But in the process, now this has now at jogging speed, gone a couple hundred feet away from us, parallel to us, and stopped over a clump of trees. And by the way, the the original point of why I knew this couldn't be a regular airplane is that it had a a red steady light on the left wingtip, as every plane ought to have. But every plane also has to have a green steady light on the right right wingtip, and this had two reds. Um, I saw and used binoculars at a point. It, there was no window, no door, no insignia, nothing. It was just flat or charcoal black. I didn't see so much as a rivet. It was like it was molded as one piece. But metallic so looking? As I got up and brushed myself off, and get this queasy feeling, no, I don't think I am supposed to go over to that Mm -hmm. right now. I'm just supposed to stand here and look. Now, it hovered over this little clump of trees for, oh, probably 10 minutes. In the meantime, as through part of that, I see the taillights of a car on a dirt road that was set back from the interstate, but parallel to it by maybe a quarter mile. And I took a chance, hoping this was more witnesses. Mm-hmm. So I raced down this harvested corn row and caught up with this uh, 40-ish guy and his adolescent son who are out of the car and looking at the same thing we've been looking at. And so as I'm trading accounts with him and telling him how it all started for us, very slowly, just walking, jogging speed, and then gradually faster, and still no more than 50 feet off the ground. It went into the distance farther east until it was lost from sight. That, um, well, that was greatly impressive. That's insane. And to this day, um, every time I've read anything about the Hudson Valley sightings, I just nod and, yep, yep, same. that's what it did. It's the same, it's the, you think it's the, that's the same vehicle that you saw? Yes, I, to my now, to my acceptance, it was the same vehicle as in the Hudson Valley. Wow. I had an even more bizarre experience 19 days later. I don't know if you're interested in that or not. It takes yeah. another few minutes to of tell course. you. Of course, I'd love to hear it. Um, now it's two weeks and five days later, and it is um, a Friday evening. I was hooked up, even though I hadn't been with MUFON very long, I was hooked up with the city police, county sheriff, state police, every airport in sight, 
um, because they don't want these cases, and MUFON does, so it makes a good marriage. So on a Friday evening, just after 7 p.m., in the course of 10 minutes, I got three quick calls. Um, I'm in a small town about 10 miles west of Athens, or of Athens, of Lansing, Michigan, where I spent most of my formative years. Um, and I'm getting calls from people in Lansing saying that an individual globe or ball of light was meandering over a river that courses through the city. So I went out into my backyard. My wife at the time accompanied me. She hated me being in this business. Um, and and you'll, if you dig into other investigators' accounts, you'll find much the same structure oh, yeah. <laughs> at home. <laughs> this had nothing to do with finishing the quarter round in the spare bedroom. Exactly. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so, and all, as much as I would argue, this is what I do, now that was going over like a lead balloon. <laughs> <laughs> so I went out into my backyard and at dusk, it was deepening dusk, and stars are just starting to pop out. And I thought, well, either I'm going to get lucky and see what they were talking about, or this is just all, as the great majority of UFO accounts are, something normal that's being misidentified. So as I'm standing there, two of what I thought were new stars in the night sky started moving simultaneously, one seemingly going away from me. And it's, it, what it seemed like it was doing was lowering in the sky, but that's because it was going farther away. And once the other seemed to be rising in the sky because it was approaching my town. In the midst of that, my wife goes back inside to do the dishes. <laughs> And so I watched this as this light came closer and closer to my town. I see this is not one light. It's four lights in a square pattern, and they're blinking at opposite corners of this maybe 10-foot square were two red and two green lights, and they were flashing at about down, down, down. Um, about that pace, red and green. Well, again, be, every commercial, I mean, every private military or commercial aircraft has mm -hmm. to have a green light on the right wingtip, but no plane can have two green lights anywhere on it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, whatever this was, it was not an authorized aircraft. I just opened the back door and shouted in to my wife, I've got to drive. I jumped into my Mustang and charged out on a county road nearby, uh, going farther west. By the time I get out there, these lights are almost over the road and, oh, maybe 100 feet in the air, um, but about a half a mile ahead of me initially. I'm going faster and faster. I'm up to about 85 in a 55 zone. When the thought occurs, um, Dan, what if you get pulled over by the cops? It's all right, officer. I am chasing a <laughs> UFO. 
and he would have a tube ready for me to oh. breathe into. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so we were, we approached a little tiny village, oh, you know, maybe a couple of hundred people in, that was set back from the from this county road a little bit. And as the lights approached this area, they suddenly shot across the road at an angle, went right over the little one-block business district of it. And as it did, the entire sky for many thousands of feet up lit up as if it were a flashbulb, just a split-second kind of flash of white in the sky. And I thought, did they just take a picture of this little village? It's a nothing place. So it, the lights kept going, still blinking, red and green, kept going northwest, and I knew the county road kept going west, so I was going to have to get off it if I was intent on chasing these things. So I found a, a dirt road to the north and one to the west and another to the north and so on. And, of course, I'm losing ground by doing this checkerboard course. The, there's trees up against the road. It's very rolling gravel roads. I'm hope, hoping that I don't uh, run into an approaching car because I could be all over them. Uh, when after some 10 minutes or so of this, and I'm really thinking hard about, Dan, you're putting your life at risk now. Is this really worth it? I'm just at that thinking about it stage when I... I came into a clearing, trees broke away, flat ground, and there they were, hovering over another a fallow field, just maybe 12 or 15 feet and up off the ground, still in this 10-foot square and still blinking red and green. Well, I pulled onto a long, the end of a long driveway that led back to a, a dark farmhouse, and I wasn't interested in finding other witnesses at this point. This was my experience. So I pulled my car into an angle so that my headlights were directly aimed at the aforementioned lights over the field, and I started flashing my headlights in something like a Morse code, which I knew nothing about. But I just kept repeating the same da-da-da-da, da-da, and didn't get any reaction. It seemed terribly important to me that I be acknowledged mm -hmm. by something other than this monotonous red and green flashing. But I didn't get anything like that. So after three minutes or five minutes of that, I thought, well, it's time to do what you came here to do. On the interstate, you didn't walk over. It's time to do that this time. I opened the door of my Mustang and I stood up between the body and the and the door of the car and wham, uh, my my mind went blank. I I will never think that I was overcome with emotion. Uh, certainly, adrenaline was coursing through my body, but I wasn't overwrought. I just simply lost all thought, and I don't know, you know, as you think about drooling on your shoes, mm -hmm. so to speak. Mm -hmm. I don't know how long I stood there like that. It could have been a minute. It could have been an hour. I don't know. 
when I kind of come back into full consciousness, the lights weren't there anymore. They weren't in front of me. That 50 yards away. You are, you are from the lights right now. Right. 50, 60 yards. Okay. It's certainly a close encounter. Yeah. Um, so I thought, what the hell? Where'd they go? And I in, spun around, and there they were behind me, just like that jet in England <laughs> found the lights instantaneously behind them. I, I, again, it may have happened many minutes beforehand, and I just wasn't aware of it as I drooled on my shoes. So I, all I could think to do was to turn my car around in several swipes on this little dirt driveway and face the blinking lights from the new direction. The thought of walking over to them never occurred to me again. I flashed my headlights some more. I still get a monotonous response of red and green flashing. And then another queasy feeling comes over me. Dan, you're intruding on something. There's an agenda here, and, and you're trampling on it. You must go home. And I started my car, and I drove away. Now, I've known a lot of MUFON folks over the year, and probably a 100 of them have said, Dan, you confronted a UFO and you drove away? <laughs> yeah, it's true, I did. I was not supposed to be there. I was intruding. Now, I'm going to go to my grave with those thoughts on my mind. Even though it, visually this one was not as graphic as the boomerang slash triangle was over the interstate, it had an even more profound effect on me. And I just knew I had to stay in this business for a lifetime. Mm -hmm. And frankly, hearkening back, this cost me not one but two marriages. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. Why? It couldn't take my involvement. Oh, yeah, I get, I get that. Um, wh when, you're, when you're chasing the lights, are you just seeing literally lights, or are you seeing any form? Oh, good Good question, because as I, I was catching up so much, somewhat with them, and my entire thinking was, what are these lights attached to? Is this a saucer? Is it a cylinder? Uh, another triangle? No, they weren't attached to anything. I finally realized by seeing them passing through in the background stars in the night sky, there's no body of anything here. These are just four lights that are somewhere between, oh, cantaloupe and volleyball size, I guess, uh, about 10 feet apart, but just traveling in that formation while blinking. What, if anything, that represents, I can't begin to tell you, but it had a profound effect on me to the point where here, 41 years later, I can still recall this as if it happened last week. Yeah. You, you joined um, UFON before these encounters. Is that what you said? Yes, that's, yes. That's, so it, you, what, what the, sparked your interest? <laughs> now you want another story. <laughs> it, goes back, it goes back to my father. I would never have given this subject a second thought were it not for my dad's experience. Mm. Um, now, 
I didn't have the greatest dad in the world. He was a lot of things, but I knew he wasn't a liar. And he came home one morning from his run. He was a truck driver, drove an 18-wheeler. Uh, he hauled bread to terminals up and down the uh, Lake Michigan coastline of Michigan to about three or four different spots. He would leave early or late in the evening and arrive back the next morning. And typically he would eat breakfast and then go to bed. He was a day sleeper. Mm. On this particular night, it's about three or so in the morning, and he's driving back south on US 131, which is right there at the lakeshore. Um, when, and he had previously seen a harvest moon low over Lake Michigan. Now, as he looked to his right, just glanced over and thought, what the hell is that? It was a ball, a sphere of light that was, in a manner of speaking, mimicking the harvest moon. Um, but he rolled down his window to make sure this was not simply a reflection, and it wasn't. So immediately he's thinking, how far away is this? I I can only tell how big it is if I know how far away it is. And that's something that every UFO investigator would tell you is a right. prime problem in, in any encounter. And by watching it go over certain um, patches of woods, over a few miles he determined, well, it's probably about a quarter mile away and probably about the size of my bungalow house, meaning maybe 25 or 30 feet in, in diameter. It would glow in the same kind of orange that the harvest moon was, sort of a, an amber rather than real orange. But over the course of a number of seconds, it would dim down and down and down until the middle portion of it was just dark and there was a ring of light around the outside. Then very gradually it would come back to bright again and it was doing this repeatedly. Uh, well, he didn't know quite what to do. He'd never even considered the UFO subject. But after some 15 miles, he decided to pull the truck off to the side, to the shoulder. <clears throat> and as he's sitting in his driver's seat, staring at these things, dumbfounded, a car pulled up behind him, another guy who was on his way to work but had been sort of chasing these lights and unable to catch up until just now. So they stood outside of the tractor of this tractor-trailer rig and looked at him for more minutes. Now, my dad told him at a point, look, I've been up and down this road literally a thousand times. I know every yard light, every tractor path. And I happen to know that about 50 yards up here is a tractor path going in that general vicinity. I'm authorized to carry a gun in the truck because sometimes he carried money um, between terminals. So he said, I've got a gun in the truck. I could never get my truck onto and up that tractor path, but we could get into your car and I'll bring the gun and we could get a lot closer. 
Well, the other guys said, you know, I think I'm about as close as I want to yeah. be right now. <laughs> and he just barely had those words out of his mouth when rather instantaneously this ball of light or sphere of something came starting, if it was a quarter mile away, it instantaneously came to within 100 yards, still very low over this field. And that that really got to the other driver. He raced back to his car and threw gravel <laughs> racing out of there. My dad was a, a World War II veteran. He saw some action. He was, um, if not heroic, he certainly wasn't a guy to be uh, spooked. But by himself, he just didn't have quite the courage to go into that field and find out what the hell was happening. So he got back in his truck finally and started up, and from there there was a long, gradual hill. And as he got to the crest of it, in his rearview mirror, he could still see the ball of light. It had not moved further. It was still back of over that field. Well, a dock worker back at his factory-type bakery said, you look like you've seen a ghost. Mm. Instead of his normal routine of coming home and having breakfast and going to bed, he came home, he had breakfast, and then went to a bookstore. And he bought every UFO book they had on the shelf. That gradually struck uh, a chord with me. He started passing those books along to me. I was in college at the time, and you know, for most college students, that is your entire world. Of course. And I found this interesting but not compelling. Um, but I began reading those rather pulp, um, supposedly nonfiction mm-hmm. books on UFOs, as good as they could write at the time, but pretty sparse by today's standards, mm-hmm. and looking for the same thing that he had seen. So he passed those on to me. I read them, and by 78, I decided I need to try to be part of the solution to this whole thing. So I joined MUFON. There was also the Center for UFO Studies at that point, KUFOS. But the center just did research. MUFON did actual hands-on investigations, and that was more appealing to me. So that's what I joined. And everything since then, you know, it was just five months later that I have two close encounters three weeks Mm -hmm. apart. Never anything since then. Um, Handling other people's spooky affairs, but Mm -hmm. none of my own. Yeah. Um, I was reading something about um, the the releasing of of all the MUFON documents um, that they Mm -hmm. collected. Um, and you sort of, you had a huge part in that. Um, there were two efforts that went on. You may be thinking of someone else who it was called the 1947 Project mm. to uh, gather up and, and somehow coordinate all the reports that had come in from the very beginning of UFO reports in 47. I was not in that. I did something different from 92 to 97. I handled um, about 250 cases of alleged abduction, physical abduction of, of subject witnesses. And uh, I learned a whole lot from that 
mostly, I would say, out of, it was something like 254 different cases. There were more than that in total individuals because there were some couples, some old families. Um, I would say that conservatively speaking, 100 of those 250 were very compelling Mm -hmm. um, because of the detail and the coordination of those with other things I knew, the agreement with other things I knew. I thought a solid hundred of those were um, were real, were credible. And I did a couple of speaking appearances for MUFON Symposia uh, on that on that effort. Yeah, you but know, that was a five year thing from ninety two to ninety seven. Okay. Uh, you mentioned that um you know, these documents started started in the late 40s, um, and in your book you talk about, you sort of start there with the sort of written history. Um, it's, I guess it, it kind of starts with, like, you know, jet um, pilots and, and the Foo Fighters and the orbs and, and that stuff. Um, is there a reason that, like, I mean, is that just the information you're inundated with? Like, is that why you Yeah, and I, I'm involved in another project now that's asking what we call the great questions facing UFO researchers. And one of them is, what was the real impetus for their coming just after World War II? It was you know, a question, as I put it, is are they here to witness the advancements in our technology. Well, maybe in part, but it's one part of that technology that that I think has brought all of these separate, if not different, um, civilizations here to watch us. It's not jets, it's nukes. Mm -hmm. After we set off a couple of nukes in 45, as one set of reasoning would have it nuclear weapons greatly um, um, gain the attention are greatly problematic to some other civilizations and that's why they're here to forestall a nuclear exchange and i've i've often thought i've i've bantered with others along the lines of if the president tried to push the button would it actually engage, right. or would they prevent um, any more nukes from going off? Right. There so are that, the, those those um, those uh, reports of, of several um, you know missile tests that have miraculously not worked, and you know they're being exciting. Yeah, across the northern tier of air bases in the mid seventies, I think it was seventy five. Um, Either bases with nuclear silos, like at Minot, North Dakota, and um, shoot in Montana. Um, I'm not thinking of that now; it'll come to me. But also bases, as one in Michigan had, that was over on the east, the Huron coast of Michigan, Wurtsmouth Air Force Base, had underground nuclear weapons stored. And they were intruded in the same few weeks as a half a dozen others were. 
in this case, the uh, the unknowns with clear intent <laughs> were hovering directly over that mound under which lay the nuclear weapons. So, and then, oh, shoot, the one in Montana, as well as I believe at Minot, North Dakota, um, the, um, the triggering of a nuclear silo, a nuclear missile, broke down. If they had been ordered to send the missiles up then, they would not have been able to fire. There were eight or ten um, at one of these bases. That, And actually the reverse has happened, where the missiles are just dead quiet in their silos, but suddenly at the command center, lights start flashing and stuff going off, and the missiles are gearing up to fire. Right. Uh, that was that was resolved, I guess, before actually any missiles took off. So it's happened both ways. They've mm-hmm. shut down the electricity. They've brought electricity up because, in the bottom line, this is electricity for us that fires these things. So they've shown us, to my satisfaction, we're greatly concerned with mm-hmm. your use of nuclear weapons or potential use. And we're going to show you that we're in charge here, not you. Mm. And it, yeah, and there is this this huge spike, and I mean the the world basically becomes aware in a huge way after, like you said, after we enter the nuclear age. Um, I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, there's a lot of people obviously are familiar with Roswell, and that's sort of being the um, the starting point for for a lot of people. Um, but there are a ton of, I think you write about this in your book, there are a ton of sightings just weeks, months before uh, that incident. Before Roswell? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, um, the Foo Fighters, which, you know, there's sporadic stuff. You can go back to the um, the airplanes, as, as it were, airships from the 1890s, that's, um, they're semi-compelling to me, but may or may not be the real beginnings of it. You can go back into the Bible and see some stuff, some paintings that have been done with a saucer in the background and in a painting of the Virgin Mary. Um, but really for the U.S., I think, and for the, the Western countries generally, this began during World War II with the Foo Fighters. These were globes, um, again, maybe basketball size, that would fly in from wherever and just perch themselves very near a fighter pilot's or sometimes a bomber's wingtips. There would usually or almost exclusively be just one, um, and it would just simply fly along with the plane for some maybe long minutes. Um, some uh, dismissive scientists and engineers have said, ah, this was ball lightning. Mm-hmm. Well, ball lightning is a real phenomenon, but it's almost, uh, well, it's rare. 
and you have to have stormy conditions. They don't just appear on a clear, cool day. And yet these Foo Fighters were appearing on in under all kinds of weather conditions. So that wasn't an answer. Um, whether they were electromagnetic or electrostatic or something else, I couldn't begin to tell you. I do know that the pilots themselves were maybe a little spooked by it, but they really didn't feel that this was an adversary, something they had to engage. It was just a curiosity, some something odd about the universe that had come and um, shown itself to these guys. It was fodder for smart-ass talk over beers between combat missions. <laughs> and then we kind of skipped from, those are from like 1943, 44, and 45. Then after the war, there was, there was a drop-off in everything for the rest of 45 and 46. And then we get to 47 with stuff that happened in July of that year. Um, and... Curiously, after Roswell and before that, the Kenneth Arnold sighting in the Cascade Mountains, the, where the term "flying saucer" came right. from, he was Kenneth Arnold was just in a small single-engine private aircraft looking for a downed cargo plane, a military cargo, in the Cascade Mountains when he sees these nine disc-like, perhaps not completely as we think of a flying saucer, a disc, but nine somethings, one behind the other, that are going through very low through the mountain passes and undulating up and down as they went, which he said was like if you took a saucer out of the cupboard and skipped it across a, a lake or pond or something, the movement was like how a saucer or stone would skip and from that we got flying saucer well virtually from the moment that those two the kenneth arnold and then roswell crashed just a couple weeks later within days of those two happenings there were all kinds of reports about flying saucers around the country now you can certainly and a skeptic would argue well that's just me tooism right. um right. And I guess we'll never really know, but for the rest of 47 and into 48, there's all kinds of reports, and every one of them involves this particular shape, the disc, the flying saucer. But then after about maybe midway through 48, things quieted down. 49, 50, 51 are very quiet, virtually no reports. And then in 52, beginning in March, there is suddenly a, a great wave of reports from the public. And again, mostly involving the saucer shape. Um, by the end of 52, the intelligence community, uh, by now we do have a CIA that was formed in 47, what they're thinking is, because most of the people in the CIA and elsewhere in the intelligence community were very skeptical of this subject, um, it had to be something normal, and people are just 
letting their minds uh, run away with them. So by the end of 52, they decided, you know, these reports keep coming in and we're never going to satisfy the public that this is all balderdash until we bring in some real scientists and, and bring some hard science to bear. So they recruited first with a, a Caltech uh, physicist, um, and he recruited a couple more physicists, a couple of astronomers, uh, a, a guy, an expert in radar. They met for a total of about 12 hours over four days in CIA headquarters. That never be known publicly that the CIA had anything to do with this because from the get-go they wanted anonymity with good reason. The CIA had determined internally if the public knows that the Central Intelligence Agency of our government is interested in and following up UFO reports, well, that just adds credence to every other report that comes in. Yeah. And at the same time, that curiosity of publicly known would be an argument against the invincibility of U.S. military. And they couldn't have that. So therefore, they had to stay anonymous and publicly they had to keep um, throwing cold water on the whole thing. And it's from there then... 52 is just an explosion of things, multi-witness stuff all over the world, including some of our government and others, our military, uh, other militaries in France and England and North Africa. Um, Algiers, over the course of a month, had a dozen different multiple case reports multiple witness cases. Um, and the military didn't know what to do with them. They, that's why they put up the 1953 Robertson panel. He's the physicist from Caltech. And they made six conclusions. And among those was, this is all, um, let's, let's see if I can get to, yeah, I, okay, they drew six conclusions. The first of those was that there was no threat to national security. Nothing had been bombed. Nothing had been turned off. Um, but their second conclusion, in a true crisis, because everybody knew who our real enemy was, it was the Soviet Union. And in a true crisis with hostile acts, or proposed on their part, these these silly UFO reports could overwhelm our communications and could cause mass hysteria and hide the actual bad news that was coming from the Soviets. Um, their third conclusion was that putting together some formal office or committee or group to try to solve most or all incoming reports would be a huge waste of effort. The fourth, because from the CIA's perspective, most of them there, there was always curious voices, but most of them there said, 
You know, this is going to go on regardless of what we say. And why would we put millions of dollars and thousands of people to try to prove a negative? Right. You can't prove a negative. can't prove that they're all IFOs, as it were. Right. Uh, their fourth conclusion was that the government should uh, embark on a training program to educate the public. You're not looking at UFOs. You're looking at um, ordinary aircraft that are reflecting sun or the running lights at night. You're looking at Venus um, or some weather phenomenon. But it would take um, a long, but they felt a rewarding effort to tell the public you're looking at IFOs. Right. And then yeah, um, you get into Blue Book and, and sign. and Yeah. And importantly, and the CIA is eventually stuck on its own petard from this, along with that um, resolving or uh, that training effort to tell the public, no, you're not looking at anything out of the ordinary, that the Air Force, which by then was uh, operating Project Blue Book, that the Air Force should debunk any significant new reports. And the CIA is going to have that uh, around their neck forever. Right. When it came out, the CIA was behind the Air Force debunking cases. Right, because at this point uh, in history, sorry, I was going to say that at this point, the, the, you know, everything that's happening is internal. They're not talking about the Robertson panel to the public, et cetera. No, no, the Robertson panel was very quiet. They issued their report that went across the Department of uh, Defense. Um, in, let's see, in their fifth conclusion, and this is a, a quote from the final report, that all national security agencies, there was a national security, uh, there was an NSA as well as a CIA, should, quote, take immediate steps to strip the unidentified flying objects of the special status they've been given and the aura of mystery they have unfortunately acquired. And the fifth or sixth and final um, result or, or recommendation was that civilian groups, by that time there were two prominent ones in the U.S., Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, APRO, started by Coral and Jim Lorenzen in Arizona, and NICAP, the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, which had um, a, a cadre of some 3,500 members and 15,000 raw reports by then, that those two groups in particular and others that were smaller and lesser known should be surveilled because they had the potential for subversive behavior. Again, we're talking deep in the Cold War, and we couldn't have some of our own taking, taking it upon themselves to subvert the, the core principles of the U.S. So that was the six conclusions of the Robertson panel. Some 16 or no, about, let's see, starting about 12 years later, there was a second effort 
that came to be known as the Condon Committee that was run out of the University of Colorado. Uh, and that was supposed to be an 18-month um, effort and looking at real hard cases that had happened across a, a, a long period of time. Now, let's see. I'm looking for a particular note here. Well, it's interesting. Um, I was. Do you think that, not to get too sidetracked, but uh, do you think that it's, mm-hmm. you know, is it the severity of the issue that creates this sort of like, you know, the government is hiding something? Or is it just this Cold War era mentality that made them just, we don't know what this is, let's, let's not, you know, muddy the waters with mass hysteria. Because, they, you know, obviously this, snowballs into like the government is the yeah. secret entity. it was it, it was rooted in the cold war but you know the cold war kind of came and went and maybe came and went a couple of times since then but it's the ufo reports keep on going so it wasn't strictly rooted in that in the condon committee um this thing operated out of the university of colorado um condon was a physicist he hired four other physicists plus three psychologists, something other than the physical sciences, to look at what was supposed to be a great array of cases. But before that ever got organized and underway, a fe- another fellow physicist named Robert Lowe, just L-O-W, that Condon had recruited, he told University of Colorado officials our study would be conducted almost exclusively by non-believers who would add an impressive body of evidence that there is no reality to the observations. And then he used a 50-cent word that's going to hang from his neck forever. He went on to say, the trick would be, I think, to describe it so that to the public it would appear a totally objective study but to the scientific community, it would present an image of a group of non-believers trying their best to be objective, but having an almost zero expectation of finding a saucer. Now, this thing, this supposed 18-month effort, was only a month or two underway when Condon himself addressed the press. He said, I won't believe in outer space saucers until I see one, touch one, haul it into a lab, and get some competent people to go over it with me. He went on to say, it is my inclination right now to recommend that the government get out of this business. My attitude right now is that there is nothing to it, but I'm not supposed to reach that conclusion for another year. So, so much for the objectivity right. of, of that study. That's <laughs> so interesting. Uh, I, it's funny how I think a lot of people, you know, obviously this is a, this is a, a subject mired in skepticism, and, and um, but I think a lot of people don't realize how many, you know, recognizable officials. You know, in, in your book, you talk a lot, and I think a lot of people sort of go the route of. You know, you get these these sources that are credible, military trained observers. There's this um, this one thing stuck out to me. There's this letter from J. Edgar Hoover that's um, 
basically, I don't know if you remember what I'm talking about, but it's like something along the lines of like, this is, if there is a disc, we need to retrieve it. Oh, that's Truman. Oh, Truman. Sorry. Yeah. He said, yeah. Uh, on, let's see. He said, provided they are real. It was a word very much like, you know, assuming they're real, they are not the product of any government on earth. Right. That was as close as he would go, was going to come, but that was actually pretty encouraging. Yeah. And then... He was uh, more honest about it than a lot of presidents mm-hmm. after him, save Jimmy, Jimmy Carter, who, of course, believed he saw something himself. Right, right. And, and yeah, I believe Reagan had a, had a um, encounter that he talks about. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think that... You know, obviously these documents that you're referencing have been released and they are available. I guess that was the Freedom of Information Act dump? Yeah, this had all gone through FOIA. They had been declassified. But the problem was, and it's not like anything absolutely new came out of this in uh, twenty early 2017 or December of 2016. I'm always going to think that this was President Barack Obama's nod to groups like MUFON. He ordered the CIA to take these documents out of the National Archives. If you wanted to look at these documents, they were there, but you had to make a personal visit to Washington to the National Archives, use one of their four desktop computers when they became available, and you couldn't copy anything. So he said, no, no, I'll put these on your website, and then anybody can do the research at home. It's interesting. Um, I don't, I, what so, do you make of that? that even that, that information's available for you in, in a physical form before that, to walk down into the building, like you said, into the archives and look at. It's interesting that, I mean, obviously a lot of the information's redacted, um, but what, what is that? The discourse of the government's confusing to me. In that, like, t- from complete denial, cover up into this, like, yeah, yeah we I were doing I'm this. always going to think that Obama himself was behind this, mm. and and he didn't. There was not a lot of love lost between Obama and his own intelligence agencies. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't rip them to shreds as Trump has been doing, right. but neither was he a great pal. Right. He wanted stuff. You know, his default was to make stuff open. And so this, in the very final days of his second term, is what he ordered. It was with that great expectation. And the and the Air Force then announces that it had just released a million pages right. <laughs> of UFO materials to its website for anybody to look at. I, so I called Jan Harson at MUFON to say, assuming you're putting a group together to uh, break all this down, I would join that effort. Mm-hmm. And he said, actually, there is no such group, but you could start one. Right. <laughs> so I thought, well, before I start prevailing on others to throw hundreds of hours of effort into this, I should get the lay of the land on these. And I'm glad that I did hold off on that because what I instantly found was, first, 
There was not a million pages of anything. There, it was a substantial amount. I what I estimated is about one hundred twenty thousand pages, but literally ninety eight percent of those one hundred twenty thousand pages had nothing to do with the UFO subject. If you wanted to know everything there was to know about rail tonnage in Bulgaria in 1956, it was there. It was one of the documents. But UFOs, eh, not so much. I'm never going to know whether that was an executive decision way back or whether it was strictly at the level of file clerks that had to do stuff with this paper. But anything and everything under the sun got thrown onto this UFO pile. Right. So when I, when I embarked on it, it took me five full months to do nothing but sort and read and sort and pitch. And what I was left with was 550 documents that at least in part addressed the UFO subject. The rest of it was just baloney. It was garbage. So, but those 550 still tell quite a story um, about what other governments were fascinated by and perplexed by, as well as our own government. And the rest of the book then came together pretty quickly. I wrote it in like seven months, and then there was, you know, uh, uh, editing and so forth that happened after that. But it came together in quite a hurry, and I really didn't need. Um, a large cadre of people looking at documents. I came to realize right away, oh, <laughs> this is mostly trash, but right. here and there, there will be something special. So you obviously relied pretty heavily on that material for, for sources. Um, but there, there, I mean, there seems to be <laughs> a ton. I mean, you're telling me there, there's, you know, 500 or so reports. Like, that's not what the government has like that's such a no they have more than that and the reason for at the end of each chapter and for the listeners um most of the chapters in the book are one calendar year Hmm. and at the toward the end of each of those chapters i have um a section called while you were away from your desk dot 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 something happened. That way back when I was first starting off in state government as a bureaucrat, um, secretaries actually had a pad of, of like buck slips that across the top said, while you were away from your desk, and then they'd say, you know, so-and-so called or somebody came to visit or a meeting was set up. So this was my frankly, rather snarky way of saying to the CIA, I know you're not sending us everything. The really good stuff happened elsewhere. I mean, it, you got it, but you didn't share it because it had national security implications. You withheld all of that stuff, but I've got them from a variety of other sources that in America and around the whole world, fascinating, important stuff was happening all the time that the CIA just buried. These didn't make their vaunted million pages of UFO material. So the the end of each chapter is 
while you were away, not paying attention, here's other stuff that you should have been paying attention to, but apparently because you didn't put it into the pile, you didn't. Um, well, yeah, the, you know, the, the, the book is a really good comprehensive cataloging of basically the, the modern UFO. I mean, uh, see, it's called CIA. From the CIA's perspective, but yeah. Yeah, yeah thank exactly. you. Um, no, it's, it's an incredible read. Um, I, I don't know if you want to briefly talk about, um, you know, I guess the the impetus was you sort of going through all these files, um, but mm-hmm. uh, obviously the the more like you said the more juicy stuff the while you're away from your desk stuff you you've gotten yeah. from these you know reports yeah. to outside. round out the year I have all this stuff from one UFO encyclopedia or another or some of the big names in UFO research over the year. Um, like Timothy Good and and um, James McCampbell and um, shoot, I'm trying to find. I'm looking on my shelf. Oh, Fawcett and Greenwood, Clear Intent was an excellent book. I used about oh a dozen or fifteen major sources like that to find these other cases that were very important were prominent at the time that should have been, especially those that were overseas. Yes, the CIA is not supposed to look at stuff in the U.S., but all, most of this stuff happened in other countries where they should have been paying attention, and no doubt, truth be known, were. And it just wasn't going to see the light of day. Right, right, right. Um, well, yeah, let, let, me, let me just like, give you a minute here to talk about the, the do a little pluggy of the book. Um, it's a, it's, it, I'm halfway through it. It's amazing. I, I really enjoy it. Um, <laughs> what you want to say about it? Sure. Um, much of the material came as part of formal reports that, um, operatives otherwise known as spooks or spies <laughs> would send in to Washington DC from wherever their posts were around the world. And, Many of these documents have a lot of blacked out material because it was truly espionage kind of stuff. But in the, in putting those reports together, the sender would say, by the way, here's something that happened locally and the mayor and, and a couple of ministers and six housewives all saw it. Um, and that would form part of those reports. That's what totaled the 550. Um, what, over the years, I guess, if anything, there was a drop-off in even that much attention by the CIA. They realized they were in over their head. They were never going to be able to resolve this And so why put in any effort to just raise speculation? Um, Before your listeners drop off to sleep from boredom, the name of the book, the name of the book is The CIA UFO Papers. It's available on Amazon. My name is Dan Wright, just plain old Dan. W-R-I-G-H-T, and I have the ISBN for anybody out there who's got a pen and a scratch pad. 
The ISBN is 978-159-003-3029. That will get you directly to this particular book. Otherwise, remember the name, the CIA UFO Papers, and my name, Dan Wright, and you'll still get to it. Uh, I'm just going to ask you a couple more things before I let you go. Mm-hmm. Um, one is something I sort of start trying to ask everybody now. And I feel like maybe we already answered this, but what do you, in your heart, beyond evidence, beyond whatever, what is this phenomenon to you? Bud Hopkins, whom I'm sure you're familiar with, who was a prominent sculptor, mostly, in New York City, but got turned on by the UFO subject and ended up um, using regressive hypnosis to bring back um, lost memories. He, at the end of a lecture I heard him give, or I heard him give years ago, was talking about a particular guy And the guy, after describing this very harrowing experience he had had with some little grays and a taller one in charge, he said, you know, one day my life is going to be up and I'm going to pass over. And if that ends up being a a gates of heaven or wherever, I'm going to say, you know, I wasn't perfect. I did sort of the best I could do. But before you render judgment on me, who were those little guys? <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing that I've, I've, uh, I'm in a different area now, asking 25 tough questions. Like, how can they make right angle turns without throwing everybody inside into the walls? <laughs> um, some other science stuff like that, as well as... Um, Yeah, where was I going with that? Uh, um, If there is something to this, what does it really mean? I don't know. I think it means that life is across the entire universe. We only know a bare tiny fraction of it. We can't even get to any other planets with rockets. You know, that's not going to work. They are... They are obviously technologically advanced beyond us. Why they're here is to kind of repeat is probably because of their concern of our use of nuclear weapons. But where does it all go from here? I gave up pursuit back in like 2003 and for a decade, I didn't do much at all in it. And it was, because I had reached the point of saying after decades in it, um, you know, as much as many, many thousands of hours as I've put into this effort, this may not be a half century or a full century of observation of Earth. This may be something that goes on for 10,000 years or more. And anything that I have done, therefore, is a mere drop in the bucket. That was a very discouraging but um, point of view that I, I couldn't ignore, and so I was discouraged by it. I've come back out to 
throw my effort into wherever else it's going in my final years. I'm over 70 now, so I know um, the days are numbered from here on. But you got to do what you got to do. And eventually, I just had to come back to it. That's great. I, I mean, I feel the same way. That's uh, that's that's perfect. Um, I want to ask you one last question, and I'll mm-hmm. let you go. Um, and it's another question I, I'm sort of enjoying asking people. Do you think that there's, uh, you know, a singularity that uh, like a day where we shake hands? with whatever these things are? The disclosure moment. I don't think so, or at least in the short run, and that's because bad things would happen. Um, In the short run, if there were undeniable recognition by our government and or others that, yes, beings with a higher technology than ours have managed to get here, whereas we can't go there, I think in the short thing, short run, some bad things would happen, like the stock market would take a real tumble. Um, Investors hate uncertainty. And boy, there's nothing more uncertain than alien beings just landed on the Pentagon lawn. What happens next? I think there would be real problems with some religions. Uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, I think they'd be fine with it. Um, Even Judaism, although it's a monotheistic religion, would not discount. And I've asked a couple of acquaintances who are Jewish, what if any effect this would have on their religious beliefs? And they both said, none. Mm -hmm. Um, God is God, and, and why wouldn't he create other beings? But Christianity, especially the more fundamentalist denominations, such as down here in Georgia, where I live now, um, they would have a huge problem, starting with the phrase, God sent his only begotten son to earth. If Jesus, and we all know what Jesus looks like, he's been portrayed in so many paintings, (laughs) He's a white guy, if right? <laughs> he was the only begotten son. Who are these guys? Right. Um, it just, they would have to be demons. Right. They would have to be um, up to no good and not for the benefit uh, or betterment of humankind. Right. Christianity would have a real tough time with this. And because we are largely a Christian country, I don't think you'll see our authorities coming um, clean on this anytime soon. Something much more fundamental would have to happen to our attitudes toward life and God and all that before our own government could say, yeah, we've known it all along. Um, That's great. Thank you so much for for, Mm -hmm. um, indulging me. It's been a good Good time. I appreciate the the opportunity to speak with you. Well, that's that. Thanks again to Dan Wright for 
for taking the time. Uh, the book is The CIA UFO Papers, 50 Years of Government Secrets and Cover-Ups. I'm Noel. I'm talking about UFOs. Uh, this song you're listening to was made by Danny Lane. Thanks so much for listening. This is where I do a famous sign-off. Thank you.